There are a few hotter topics today than the whole area of identity. Uh, gender identity, sexual identity, national identity. Identity politics sets the agenda for many. And there's no getting away from the importance of identity. Because if we get our identity wrong, uh, as so many people tragically are doing in these days, if we get our identity wrong, it will affect everything else. And tonight we're coming to consider what our identity is as Christians. Because in these next few verses of his letter, the Apostle Peter gives us a big vision of what a Christian is. And he follows it up with a big vision of how a Christian should live. And the two go together. In order to act rightly, we need to know what our identity is. Someone will make little progress in living the Christian life if they don't know who they are in Christ. And if Peter's letter is about how we as Christians are, are to live in light of the end of the world, then we need to get our identity right. Because how we live flows not simply from where we think we're going, but from who we think we are. How we live it flows not simply from, from where we think we're going, but from who we think we are. So firstly, tonight we're going to see Peter's Holy Spirit-given vision of what a Christian is, followed by his Holy Spirit-given vision of what the Christian life should be like. So two headings tonight. And firstly, we see a big vision of what a Christian is. A big vision of what a Christian is. What is a Christian? How would you answer that question? Well, there may be various answers in your mind right now. But, but I'm guessing that the first thing that comes to mind, that you wouldn't answer that question by saying, to be a Christian is to be a partaker of the divine nature. And yet that's the answer that Peter gives here in verse 4. To be a Christian is to be a partaker of the divine nature. Maybe we hear that and we're thinking, well, well, well what is that? Uh, and we'll get to, to what that means and what it doesn't mean in a minute. But let's see how this fits into what Peter has been saying so far. Peter's writing this second letter, as I've already mentioned, to remind people that the end of the world is coming, to tell them what the end of the world will be like when it comes, and then to instruct them how to live today in light of then. How to live today in light of then. And last week we saw two encouragements he gives us as we seek to live the life that God has called us to live. The first encouragement, you'll see it there in verse 1, is that our faith is of equal standing with the apostles. What an amazing thing, that, that there aren't different trim levels of, of Christians, but our faith, it is of equal standing with that of an apostle's. And which we saw does bring a challenge with it as well. We can't look at someone like Peter and say, well, it's okay for you, Peter, to talk about living a godly life because you're an apostle. No, our faith is no less valuable than his. And that's because we stand before God on the same basis as Peter does tonight in heaven. 
Uh, We stand before God through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The second encouragement we we, we saw for living the life we're called to live is is in verse 3. And that is that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That phrase, life and godliness, as we saw, it's just another way of saying a godly life. So we have everything that we need to live the life that God has called us to live. But what is the life that he calls us to live? Well, that's where verses 3 and 4 help us. Because they give us a, a glorious vision of what it is to be a Christian. Of our identity in Christ. Verses 3 and 4 both give the same answer effectively to the the question of what it is to be a Christian. Peter just puts it in slightly different ways. So in verse 3, to become a Christian is to become like God. Him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Surely that's a far greater conception of the Christian life than just thinking of a Christian as someone who does or doesn't do certain things. A Christian is someone who has been called to Jesus' own glory and excellence. And then in verse 4, Peter goes even further where he says that to be a Christian is to become a partaker of the divine nature. Maybe even as we read that, you were thinking, well, what does Peter possibly mean by that? Because you know what, what he can't mean. You know that, that, that he can't mean we become part of God in some way. One, one simple reason for that is because God can't change. And if we were to, to become a part of God, it would mean that God had changed. But rather, becoming a, a partaker of the divine nature means that we become like God. Uh, that, that some of his nature is seen in us. And there's actually nothing greater than can happen to a human being. It's something beyond which nothing greater can be imagined. In the 1600s, there was a, a covenanter minister living in Irvine called Alexander Nisbet. He, he wrote a commentary on First and Second Peter. And, and he's, he's a, a glorious description of what it means to become a partaker of the divine nature. He says it's when a sinner begins to look like God as Father. And in some weak measure to resemble him in heavenly wisdom, holiness, upright. Uh, uprightness and especially in humility self-denial love pity towards other miserable sinners and zeal for the lord's honor in short he says it's when the perfections that were most clearly seen in jesus are seen in us that's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature when the perfections that are seen most clearly in jesus are seen in us Can you imagine anything better than to be like Jesus? There is no greater ambition we could have in this world and the next. And that is your glorious calling as a Christian. Your calling isn't just to have your sins forgiven. Wonderful as that is. 
but it's to be a partaker of the divine nature. It's that the life of God perfectly manifested in the world in Jesus Christ, that that same life of God might be seen in you. And at this point I want to pause and introduce someone I may quote from, uh, from time to time during this sermon series. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he trained as a medical doctor before going on to become one of the greatest preachers in the last century. And Second Peter was the first book of the Bible that he, that he preached right through. He did it in Westminster Chapel in London in the winter of 1946-47. The sermons were later published. Uh, and as the blurb on the back of the book says, he was proposing to rebuild a congregation on lines strangely unfamiliar in post-war Britain. His strategy under God was to see, to see the church rebuilt through authoritative expository preaching which went across against all prevailing trends. So, so in other words, with church attendance in Britain already in steep decline after the First World War, under God, Lloyd-Jones wanted to see a congregation in the middle of London built up. Uh, and a strategy for doing that was to do something that hardly anybody else was doing. And that was to preach through books of the Bible. And in uh, one, of, one of the early sermons in that series, on the verses in front of us, he said this. We not merely believe that our sins are forgiven in Christ. Thank God that we do believe that, but we must not stop at that. I am not merely one who is forgiven. I am to be a partaker of the divine nature. I am to be a, a new man, a new creation, a new being. And I am to reveal and manifest these characteristics. That is the calling. And what a glorious calling that is. You can wake up tomorrow morning and, and just as all the things that, that you might be facing tomorrow flood into your head as you, you remember things that, that you've, you, you've blissfully been able to forget about in your sleep. You can wake up and say, I am a partaker of the divine nature. I am a new man or woman. I am a new creation, a new being. Maybe we think that such a calling as that is just beyond us. Maybe most of us feel we're just trying to get through to bedtime in one piece. And yet... His divine power has granted us what we need to live out this glorious vision. And so an important question to ask is how do we experience his divine power? If he has given us everything we need, how do, how do we get to experience it? Well thankfully Peter answers that question in verse 4 by telling us that we receive his divine power or we experience God's divine power as we receive his promises by faith. Though Peter, it seems he can hardly even just call them God's promises. He calls them his precious and very great promises. And isn't that what God's promises are to you if you're a believer? They're, they're precious and very great. Maybe your mind has already gone to his promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. 
or his promise that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Or his promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And it's as we are enabled to receive these promises by faith that God begins to change us. As we receive these promises by faith, God begins to stamp his image on our hearts. And through them, through the promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. Not simply at the end of the Christian life, uh, not, not simply in heaven, but from the very beginning of the Christian life. When, by God's grace, we are enabled to believe the promises of the gospel, we become partakers of the divine nature. When we hear that promise that we ended with this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when we apply that to ourselves, we become partakers of the divine nature. When we hear his promise that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Uh, and so we do confess our sins and believe that we are forgiven and experience that forgiveness. Through believing those promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. It's also clear that, that Peter's talking about becoming partakers of the divine nature from conversion because he says in verse 4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And I don't want to just skip over that. Because at first glance, to, to talk about having escaped the corruption that's in the world, that sounds as if to be a Christian means that we've escaped all the badness in the world, that, that there's a lot of corruption out there, but, but we've escaped that. But think about it a minute, because, because where is the corruption in the world? Is the corruption in, in the world just, just floating around out there? Well, no, it's in human hearts. The corruption that is in the world due to sinful desire was once in all of us, and it still is to some extent. John Calvin says that by setting the corruption in the world in opposition to the divine nature... Peter shows that this corruption isn't in the elements of the world that surrounds us, but in our hearts. Calvin says that corruption is placed in the world that we may know that the world is in us. Corruption is placed in the world that we may know that the world is in us. And that should stop us in our tracks. We can so easily think, well, well the world out there is so bad that we need to avoid it. When actually what we're being told is that the evil of the world is in miniature in all of our hearts. So how do we escape the corruption of the world as verse 4 puts it? Well not by going out of the world. Jesus told us that. If we could go and live on the moon and start a colony on the moon. There would still be a world of evil in our hearts. Rather, the only way to escape the corruption of the world is by being converted and by becoming a partaker of the divine nature. And what's true for us is true of our children. 
How do our children escape from the corruption that is in the world? By being converted. What's the biggest danger to our children? Well, it's not the world out there, but, but it's the world in here. It's in their hearts. That's the biggest danger to them. And the only way to escape that is through conversion. Through becoming a participant in the divine nature. And that's a, that's a, a glorious thing to happen to anyone. It's not just that we, that we want them to come out and believe a certain set of truths, but that they would become, like us, partakers of the divine nature. So that's where Peter starts his, his letter, with, with our identity, with who we are. And then in light of both who we are and in light of the fact that the end of the world is coming, he calls us to live in a certain way. And that brings us to our second point this evening which we'll look at a bit more briefly. So having seen a big vision of what a Christian is, to be a partaker of the divine nature through his precious and very great promises, we come secondly to see a big vision of how Christians should live. A big vision of how Christians should live. If something is mentioned at the beginning of a book of the Bible and then mentioned again at the end of a book in the Bible it's a good clue that, that whatever that, that is it will, will be a big theme in the bit in between in the rest of the book and Peter bookends his letter here he starts and finishes it by talking about the, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord and so in verse 2 Peter's desire which is also God's desire is that God would multiply his grace to his readers. And how will that happen? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then if you, you, you flip or, or, or scroll to, to the very last verse of the book, uh, Peter ends by saying, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Yes, God's divine power has granted to us all things we need. But we're still commanded to do something. We're still commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. In fact, it's only once we become Christians that we're able to respond to God's call to live in a certain way. There's no point trying to tell a dead person to do something. You know, God can do that when he converts someone, but... But, but there's, no, there's no point in us trying to tell a dead person to do something. The only type of person we can tell to do something is someone who's alive. And in the same way, it's only when we become Christians that we're able to respond to God's commands. To, to use the illustration of a farm. When we become Christians, it's like we're given land, we're given seed, we're given equipment. And then we're called to farm. There's no point telling a man to farm if he doesn't have a farm. But when we become Christians, we're given everything we need to grow. As Peter has already told us, his divine power has granted us everything that we need to live a godly life. Now even then, it's still God who gives the increase. It's not salvation by grace and sanctification by our own effort. Uh, as we, we can easily but wrongly assume. But still we have to make an effort. We have to put everything we have into it. 
And so verse 5 begins, for this very reason. For this very reason, because of all that's gone before, because you're now alive, because his divine power has granted you all that you need, because of this, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then we have this list of seven things. So this list in verses 6 and 7, it, it, it can't be a list of things to do to try and earn God's favour. Rather, faith, faith in Jesus Christ is the starting point. And after God has made us alive in him, this is how we're to live. Are there things in life that you're particularly diligent about? Well, here are seven things that the Christian is to be particularly diligent about, or or eight if you count faith. Uh, There is a bit of an overlap with the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control and love are both fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Galatians also has faithfulness, while we have faith here. Uh, Galatians has patience, here we have perseverance. So, so there's a bit of an overlap, but surely every one of the things listed here are, are also fruit of the Spirit. We make every effort to supplement our faith with them, but only God's Spirit can work them in our lives. But they're not optional extras. They're not just for those who have the time or who are particularly serious Christians. Uh, as Peter goes on to say in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So these seven qualities aren't optional extras, they're vital. And uh, For the rest of our time this evening, we're going to look very briefly at each one in turn. Uh, the first quality we're to supplement our faith with is virtue. Virtue here means moral excellence. Uh, There's a little footnote in our Bibles that says it could be translated excellence. It's a word that's only used four times in the New Testament. So, so I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the other, the other three. Uh, Peter has already used it in verse four uh, with reference to God. Uh, it's translated as excellence there. Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So he's used it about God. Now he's using it about us. So the, the message is clearly that we are to be like God. It's a God-like characteristic. Peter used it in his first letter uh, where he says that we're to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. And then Paul also uses the word once. He uses it in Philippians where we're told that if there is any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise, think about such things. And so it's that excellence, that moral excellence, which is seen in God and is also to be seen in us. Next on the list, we have knowledge. We, we've seen how Second Peter starts and ends with the need for us to grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And obviously that goes way beyond just knowing information about him. And the more we we know him, the more we will know how we should act in any given situation. Then we have self-control. It's defined as restraint of one's emotions, impulses or desires. It's also our culture values, is it? 
Our culture says if you want something, go and get it. Don't wait until you can afford it. Don't wait until you're married. You can have it now. There have been non-Christian cultures such as the Stoics who have seen self-control as a good thing. But, but Christian self-control, it isn't mastery of ourselves by our own power. But rather it's submission to God and surrender of control to the Holy Spirit. Submission to God and surrender of control to the Holy Spirit. Then comes perseverance, which speaks of the need to stand firm in the spiritual battle. It's commitment to the Lord Jesus for the long haul. Whatever persecutions or sufferings or in Peter's context, false teachers might come our way. It's faithfulness for the long haul. Not a flash in the pan type of person who's here today making a lot of noise and and then they're gone tomorrow. But faithfulness for for the long haul. The the Christian life, it's not a Ryanair flight. It's it's a a transatlantic flight. It's a flight to Australia. It is a long haul flight. And don't undervalue quiet stickability. Perhaps you look at other Christians and you think, well, well, they have so much more than I have. But if you have quiet stickability, uh, you have something of great worth. William Carey is often called the father of modern missions. Uh, and he said that if anyone were to write a, an autobiography or a biography of him, that they shouldn't give him too much credit. And all that they should say in the biography was that he was able to plod. And sure enough, one biography of him is entitled, I Can Plod. And there's no one here who who can't do that. He could plod and you can plod. Don't underestimate quiet stickability. Don't underestimate plodding. The old story of the the hare and the tortoise, it's the one that keeps going that wins the race. And then steadfastness is followed by godliness. Uh, Same word Paul uh, uses elsewhere when he tells Timothy to pursue godliness. So obviously it's not just something for for Timothy as a minister to pursue godliness, but it's it's for all of us. Uh, I was reading uh, last week, the the earlier part of of 1 Peter, there was a a Puritan preacher in London in the 1600s and he talks about how how many ministers there are who are outstripped in terms of godliness by people in their congregation. And he says that there should be a bit of a a healthy rivalry between ministers and their people to try and outstrip one another in godliness. Uh, What is godliness? It's summed up in the first and greatest commandment. That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind. The the, the final two virtues that we'll get to are are more about our our horizontal relationships with with Christians and then with with the rest of the world. But, But the relationship with God, it has to be there. It has to be first and foremost. If we don't have a healthy relationship with him, that will affect everything else. So two more and then we're done. Starting with brotherly love. 
I don't know if anyone remembers the, the song, Where is the Love? Uh, I think it was the Black Eyed Peas. And I look back, it was 2003. Uh, I, 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 so I would have said it was five years ago, ten years ago, but nearly 20 years ago. But sadly, that, that question could be asked of many churches or individual Christians. Where is the love? Yes, a church functions well enough. All the constituent elements of being a church are there. But where is the love? Because brotherly love isn't an optional extra for Christians. We're, we're to love our fellow Christians simply because they're Christians. And someone could go to church every Sunday... But if they, if they walk straight out afterwards and, and there's barely any interaction with fellow church members, then you have to ask, where is the love? And the, the fact that the final fruit on the list is, is love, uh, it means we're to love everyone, uh, brotherly love or, or, or brotherly affection followed by, by love in general. We're to love our neighbours as ourselves. But if you look at the life of a believer you'll be able to see that Christians hold a particular place in their affections, that fellow Christians hold a particular place in the affections of a true believer. And then finally, and more broadly, love. It's the first and fundamental fruit of the Spirit. We saw when we looked at that, that it's talking primarily about love for, love for, for others. And, and I think it's the same here. Uh, yes, we're, we're, we're to love God, uh, but that, that sort of comes under godliness. This is, this is love for our fellow man. So the first fruit of the Spirit here on this list, it comes last. I think both times where it's placed is significant. Uh, and here the significance that all these virtues are summed up by the word love. So it's a, it's a big vision. It's a glorious vision of what the Christian life should be like. And I, I'd encourage you not just to, to, to close your Bibles and forget this list. Here, here's a practical suggestion. Uh, there are, are seven of them. Uh, so you can take one each day of uh, the incoming week uh, and meditate on it, uh, confessing where you fall short uh, and praying that God would work it into your life. And just as we close, how, how important is it that these qualities are seen in us? Well, it's vitally important for our own sake, as we'll come back to see next week, because the alternative is unfruitfulness. So it's vital for us that, that these characteristics are, are seen in us. But it's also vitally important for the watching world. And I'll give the, the final word to Lloyd-Jones. He says that the world is wretched and unhappy because it doesn't pay heed to the Christian message. And I'm sure we'd all agree with that. But then he asks, well, why doesn't the world pay attention? And he says, I suggest that one chief cause of that is the fact that it does not see this quality of life in us. When it does see it, then it will begin to pay attention. I would urge, therefore, that it is the business of the church to concentrate on herself and not on the world that is outside. It's powerful, isn't it? It's the business of the church to concentrate on herself and not on the world outside. And he concludes, revival 
starts in the church and revival comes when Christian people begin to realise how far short they fall of the standard that is depicted in the New Testament. And so we've seen tonight a big vision of what it is to be a Christian. We've seen a big vision of how Christians should live and how big an impact it would have on those around us if by God's help we truly grasped and lived out this vision. Amen. Well, the, the vision of Second Peter, it's also a vision of Psalm 112, uh, which we come to sing in closing. Psalm 112 shares this glorious vision of the Christian life because it's first and foremost a picture of the Lord Jesus himself. So Psalm 112b, page 280, tune 273, tune 273. And if you do, uh, meditate on, on these virtues during the week. Don't think of them in isolation from the Lord Jesus don't just think of the virtue and apply it to your own life, but, but, but apply it to the life of Jesus. In other words, think, think through his earthly life and think how, how that virtue was seen uh, most clearly in him. Uh, because he is ultimately the one uh, who, 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 who perfectly exemplified all these qualities. He is truly the blessed man of the Psalms. And, and to become a Christian is to become a partaker of the divine nature. Uh, it is that these qualities that are most clearly seen in the Lord Jesus will be seen in us. So Psalm 112b, tune 273, will stand to sing praise. <laughs> 